0: together. Our Father, we come to you today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has made the sufficient, perfect sacrifice for our sin. The one who has borne the wrath of God in our place that we might never face his wrath. We ask you now, O Lord, for your church That you might quiet our our hearts and give us a mind to understand the word, ears to hear the word, that you might do your work in our midst. Perhaps there are those who are here whose sins have never been cleansed, who've never known the forgiveness of sin in Christ. Would you? Would you open to them the glories of the gospel that they might believe on Christ? Would you build up your church and cause us to leave here today with a a greater understanding of, of your grace and glory, the fact that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, no matter what man may say. May you draw us close to you, we pray in Christ's name, and together all God's people said, Amen. On January 7th, nine days ago, I suppose, of this year, Canada signed a bill into law. It was, maybe you've heard about this, Bill C-4. It's a law that, has, that, that criminalizes what has come to be called conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, according to the law, and I'll quote, means a practice, treatment, or service designed to, and then there's a list, and I'll just choose a few from that list, designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, designed to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth or designed to repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned at the person uh, to the person at birth and then the the law goes on to say this for greater certainty this definition does not include a practice treatment or service that relates to the exploration or development of an integrated personal identity, such as a practice, treatment, or service that relates to a person's gender transition and that is not based on an assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression is to be preferred over another. That bill is somewhat similar to ones in certain and, and more uh, beefy ones in certain jurisdictions in Australia. Of course, in our own country, there are 14 states that already have similar conversion therapy bans, though mm, with more limited scope. Indiana has recently introduced a bill of its own. The Democratic Party, Party has made advancing conversion therapy laws a key part of the party platform. But it's the Canadian law that has garnered a great deal of of attention. If you read that law and you become a little bit familiar with it, you'll find that it is broad enough to apply to almost any context. For instance, if a pastor preaches a message from the pulpit about biblical sexuality and the authorities interpret it as trying to convince someone to turn from homosexual practices or from a transgender lifestyle, it is possible for him to be arrested. And that doesn't just apply to a pastor. Can you imagine a scenario for a school teacher? Or what about if an individual wants to leave the gay or transgender lifestyle and you advise them on how to do so? That would be, in effect, breaking the law. Not only that, but the preamble to that Canadian law, as it is written, refers to biblical sexuality as, quote, a myth which can cause harm. Today, pastors in Canada and all around the world have decided to preach on biblical sexuality, biblical morality, and I've decided to join them. I've decided that we will join them as we try to confront this. Now, in using a term like confront, I want to be sure that you understand what I'm talking about. In confronting this, I'm not trying to serve Notice. I'm nobody, we're nobody, we don't have to serve notice on anybody, and I'm not concerned with doing that, but I am seeking not to speak to the pagan rulers, but rather seeking to speak to the church of God so that we have clarity on this issue. Why? Why this issue? I've been pastoring a church now for 28 years, and I have learned that there are many issues on which we could take stands. There are uh, many hills, as it were, hills on which we could choose to die. And, and honestly, early in the ministry, uh, I was running to every hill I could. And, uh, and I'm a little bit less like that today, and I've tried to learn over the years what the hills are that are worth defending. But I want to tell you, I want to confess something to you today that I fear being a coward more than I fear any earthly thing, the kind of coward that is afraid to speak declaratively, clearly, and most importantly, biblically on any issue. This week, I ran across a quote from Martin Luther in which he said, "'If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking,' I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. But here's the part that got me. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches from that point. Furthermore, I want to address this issue because as I hope to show you, it is this issue and others like it on which the very existence of the church of Jesus Christ is predicated. If, if, if we miss this, we miss not just what it means to be faithful to Jesus Christ, but what it means to know Jesus Christ. And that's really what I want to show you today. I want to take you to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you probably have heard that the city of Corinth was situated strategically on the southern tip of, of Greece. It, it really became a sort of a potpourri of, for different people, and different languages, different cultures. It was a materially prosperous city, a, a place that was known to be the hub of sailors from all around the then known world. It was It was also a place that was submerged in a swamp of immorality. It was a a sex-crazed, idol-worshiping, greed-flourishing city. And it was there, in the providence and grace of the Almighty God, that God chose to bring His church into existence. In the midst of all of that darkness, in the midst of all of that debauchery, in the midst of all of that uh, moral Uh, Morass, God had decided to bring his church into existence. You know that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church on several occasions. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he begins addressing what ultimately was a critical problem in the church. You see, church members were so happy. That was something that was going on in in that culture anyway. But the church members particularly were taking other members of the church to court. Now, it's not so much about being sue happy. It's not so much about taking other members of the church to court. But what was really happening and what Paul is really pressing at in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was essentially that there was a lack of forgiveness among the church members. Instead of dealing with things the way within the church, they were the way they were supposed to, they were airing out their dirty laundry before a pagan world. They were beginning to act more like the world than part of the kingdom of God. And he just asks them, point blank, point blank in chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's quite a statement to make right there. Especially for Paul, especially at the time in which he was writing. He makes this statement that just flies in the face. It flew in the face then of basic humanism, and it flies in the face today of basic humanism. He just said, and this is important, I want you to get this. Maybe just write this down in the margin of your Bible, right beside verse 9 of chapter 6. He just said that there are people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. There are people who are not going to go to heaven and that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> to be able to say in the midst of a society where the overarching idea is that everybody everywhere goes to heaven Here the Bible says in Proverbs 15:26 the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Now what I want to do is just show you the flow of this text Today, and why it ends up being such a monumental text today for this issue that we're considering. It's possible that there could be many today, even in churches around the world, right now, who will not go to heaven. So we have to ask the question who? Who will not inherit the kingdom? Who will not go to heaven? And Paul answers. He calls them the unrighteous. The wicked. Wicked people will not go to heaven. And the word is, is translated or ESV unrighteous. It's the word that's used that speaks of those who are unjust. Those who, whose righteousness fails or falls short of the divine standard. Those whose righteousness falls short of the divine standard. And then what he does, as if to give us, a to to paint a word picture, he gives us a tenfold catalog of sin that not only fairly summarizes Corinthian culture, but it is a fair summary of unrighteousness or of wickedness. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see this tenfold catalog of sin that fairly summarizes Corinthian culture. Let's just go through this tenfold list together. First, he says the sexually immoral. The old word here, I think, is preferable. It's the word fornicators, just refers to. Basic sexual immorality by unmarried persons. Now what we're talking about here, just to be clear, is the habitual practice of sexual sin outside of marriage. This is what is absolutely exalted, and not just exalted, but is actually celebrated in our culture today. Don't you know, Paul says, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Number two, he refers to idolaters. We're talking here about the basic uh, disobedience, basically violating the first two commandments. Worship of false gods and in false systems. We're referring here to those who create images for the sake of worshiping those images. Don't you know, says the Apostle Paul, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. Number three, we have the word adulterers. Adulterers referring to married persons who have engaged in sexual relationships outside of marriage. Basically, those who destroy the God-ordained relationship of of marriage. By the way, you might find this interesting that just up in chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, he gives a similar list, some of these similar sins. Don't you know, says Paul, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And then we have here in the ESV, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, now there is a note here at the bottom, and, and I think the, the editors of the ESV do us a, a justice here by telling us that there are actually two terms that are represented in this one translation The first is effeminate, that's number four, and the fifth is, and then the next one is homosexual, men who practice homosexuality. Both of those terms are are summarized in that one phrase. Two terms being used here, two specific words, effeminate and homosexual. Those words refer to those who distort human sexuality. Those who blur the God-ordained distinction in gender and who pervert the God-ordained function of human sexuality. Just as an aside, the temple of Aphrodite was there in Corinth and from that temple, every night thousands of temple prostitutes would descend upon the city in order to ply their trade. Moreover, the temple of Apollo was there in Corinth, and it was, assumedly, a a center for music and art, but it also became the headquarters for the practice of homosexuality. You see, Apollo was a male god who had homosexual relationships with boy gods. You need to understand but the whole Roman Empire was infested with this sin. Most of the Roman emperors, 14 out of 15 of them, practiced homosexuality. And Nero, who was ruling at the time that Paul was writing this letter, ruling during much of the New Testament period, had actually taken a boy, he had had surgery performed on that boy to make him as much of a woman as possible, and then he married him in a public ceremony, paraded him through the streets, took him home to be his wife, and then he in turn became wife to another man. It was pretty gutsy of the Apostle Paul to say, neither homosexuals will be be, uh, inheritors of the kingdom of God. Don't you know, Paul says, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or those of the homosexual lifestyle. Then number six, he brings in thieves. Thievery was a common practice in Corinth. The existence of public baths and public gyms just lent itself to that because if people would, would leave their things, their, their possessions, and go into the bath or go into the, to the gym And then things were just stolen uh, rampantly. Don't you know, says Paul, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves. And then greedy. This word is more than wanting what someone else has. It refers to doing whatever is needed in order to get what others have. It refers to one who defrauds another in order to gain for themselves. Don't you know, says the Apostle Paul, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor greedy. And then, drunkards. Drunkards is a reference to the uncontrolled consumption of alcohol. It is... It is the use of alcohol to create a buzz. That's why the scriptures delineates between wine that is red when it is red and strong or strong drink. Don't you know that Paul says that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards. Number nine, he refers to revilers, those who who cause pain with their words, those who habitually attack and wound and destroy others with their words. You can put in here lots of things, slander and gossip, to name a few. Don't you know, says Paul, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor revilers. And then number 10 nor swindlers. Swindler is a reference to those who deceive and take advantage of others in order to experience financial gain. Blur the lines a little bit. Fudge on the numbers a little bit. Don't you know, says Paul, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? This this list, this tenfold catalog of sins... Not an exhaustive list by any means, but serves as a summary list of what it means to be wicked. of What it means to be unrighteous. Those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. Now friends, listen. Listen carefully. These things are not conditions. They're not conditions for which you need help. These are sins from which you need to be saved. These are not conditions for which you need help. These are sins from which you must be redeemed. But we have gone in our society and sadly in the church at large, we have called these things conditions, even addictions. But we have often failed to call them sins against the holy God. And that those who practice them habitually are called wicked. The habitual lifestyle practice of these kinds of things is called wickedness. It is called unrighteousness. But now I want you to continue listening carefully, hopefully, because we're going to get to the point of why I'm trying to bring everything out that I've said so far. There's a phrase at the beginning of verse 11, and I just want you to look at it. Hopefully you see it, and such were some of you. Do you see it? And such were some of you. In other words, Paul's saying in the church at Corinth, there were ex-fornicators, ex idolaters ex-adulterers, ex-effeminate, ex-homosexuals, ex-thieves, ex-greedy, ex-drunks, ex revilers and ex-swindlers there in the church at Corinth, just like there are here today. Right? Some of you, your life used to be primarily characterized by these kinds of things. Right? Right? Yeah? Which makes me ask the question, what happened there at Corinth? Well, along came the Apostle Paul. Just turn back with me to to Acts chapter 18 for a moment. Along came the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. In verse 4, he reasoned, this is Paul, in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. That's key there. He was occupied with the word. It means that he held himself together or completely to the preaching of the word. Instead of just on the Sabbath days, all Paul did was preach the word. He was occupied with the word. What do you mean? He was testifying to the Jews that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What happened there in Corinth? Well, I'll tell you what happened. God had foreknown and predestined a people. God had foreknown and predestined many people in this hog town of a city. And Paul went there and he was just given to the word. I mean, look at this man. He is laser focused. A lot of times he would go into a place and he was he would support himself by tent making, go to the Sabbaths, you know, go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. But here he's not doing any of that. He is laser focused on the word. Day after day, preaching the word, convincing people that the Lord Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And he's just laser focused on the word. And then you look at verse 8. And many people believed and they were baptized. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But... You were washed. <laughs> Paul says in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly why baptism becomes such a picture of the activity of the Holy Spirit. So much so that it is identified with the call, with calling on the name of Jesus. It's exactly what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 22 verse 15 when he gave his testimony. The outward sign of water baptism was the public testimony of this spiritual cleansing. You were washed. There's a sense in which you read that catalog of sins that, and you feel the dirt, don't you? But you were washed. It doesn't stop there. You were washed and And you were sanctified, you were set apart unto holiness. He's saying your life was changed. You were set apart for the master, the king of kings and lord of lords. Not only you who were dirty were washed, but then you were taken and you were set apart for holy things. Because you were justified. You were justified, friends, You you were justified. You guilty sinners were judicially declared to be righteous on the basis of faith in the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You have a new standing with God. You are no longer enemies of God, but you are children of the King. He's addressing the issue of Of the lack of the standard of righteousness. Falling short of the standard. God's standard of righteousness. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. And you were justified. You were granted a righteousness. An alien righteousness. That doesn't just supplement. Your falling short. It absolutely transforms your life. Now listen. Just in case you're here this morning thinking, wow, I was brought up in a Christian home, as so many of you young people here this morning were. I don't want you to think that you don't know anything about God's grace because you've never had run-ins with this kind of wickedness. Some of you might think that. Well, that might be somebody else, but it's, it's not me. What you need to understand is that every one of these sins has a pull on our own heart. Listen to what Alistair Begg said. He said this. The grace of God is no less wonderful when it saves us from the possibility of a life as this than when it saves us out of the actuality of a life as this. Some of us were saved out of it. Others of us were saved From it. But we were all saved by the same grace. Amen? So so we don't look down our noses at those people who were saved from it. We don't look down our noses at those who were saved out of it. We just look up and give praise to God. Okay. But here's the whole reason I'm telling you all of this. Some in that church were just the armpit of human depravity. But what? But they were transformed. Can I say they were saved? They were converted, they were changed. You see, the existence of the church, not just at Corinth, but the existence of the church is predicated on conversion. The existence of the church is predicated on life transformation. In other words, friends, you can't have the church without conversion. And by that word conversion, I'm not talking about some spiritual, invisible, indemonstrable uh, uh, fantasy. I'm referring to an absolute change of life from the habitual practice of unrighteousness and wickedness, the kind of life that wants nothing to do with God genuinely and nothing to do with the kind of life that pleases God. From that to a life that recognizes wickedness and unrighteousness as exactly that and shuns it, turning from it, coming to Christ, full of sin and longing to be cleansed. And the Canadian bill, C4, and others like it, that will no doubt one day, probably very soon, come even here. That is an effort to seek to take away the entire foundation of the church, which is what? Life transformation. Life conversion. Change. And what the law is saying is, no, I can't do that. I can say today that I really am glad that God doesn't bat an eye when the when the pagan rulers sign laws into existence such as this, I am glad that God kind of laughs at them and holds them in derision and, said, and says, watch what I'll do. Because they will never destroy the foundation of the church. Poor saps. They just keep on obeying their master the devil like so many puppies on a leash, just doing his bidding, And they'll never destroy the foundation of the church. Why? Because the church is built on the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is building His church such that the gates of hell don't stand a chance. And so we can preach a gospel of conversion, of life transformation, of change. Listen, those of you who are bound right now in a life of wickedness, maybe you're listening right now online and and you're in the throes of just utter wickedness. You can be saved, you can be converted, you can be changed, you can be washed and made clean from all that dirt and filth that you wake up with day by day and you feel like it's holding over you like a dark cloud and you feel the darkness just like many of us have felt the darkness and despair of our sinful lifestyle. We can't do anything to get rid of it but praise the Lord, you can't, you can be washed. You can be set apart, not just washed and say, okay, now go on your merry way but washed and set apart for holy purposes. By being justified, not having a righteousness supplemented by a complete, but by a completely new alien righteousness, such that God would recognize you as being his own child. You can be converted, you can be changed, you can be washed, you can be sanctified, you can be justified. Just look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, lest there be some of us here today who long still more for more change, long still more for more life transformation, because we all recognize that though the habitual lifestyle, life service to, to sin to that cruel master. Has been changed. We still long for more transformation. Don't we? As We still struggle. With sin. And every expression of unrighteousness. Herein is the reason. Brothers and sisters. For us to continue. To leave that life behind us. Which is why he says. Flee sexual immorality. Because you are united to Jesus Christ. Flee sexual immorality because you, in your body, are an actual temple of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. Therefore, yield your lives yet more and more to this Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. Let us go and glorify God with our bodies, which are Christ's, not our own. We're not here as our, for myself. It's not about me. It's not about you. Your very existence is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Go and serve him. And these laws will come. And and. And little puny pagan rulers will banty about and they'll huff and puff. But it's of naught. We serve a greater king. Let's pray.